Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. And this week we're going to be talking about culture. And not bacterial culture, although that may come into it. I have like five tabs open about different bacterial species right now. <laughs> but about like the difference between the culture that we get from our family, our community, and the broader societal idea of culture and what that means. And that might come with stereotypes, that might come with particular ideas of how people who identify with a particular culture are meant to act. And that can hurt us as individuals and that can make things really difficult for us. And this sort of comes from, um, I went on a trip to Singapore quite recently, so I'm like super cultured now. (laughs) And something I kept thinking while I was over there was that fairly soon after I was born, something that my parents had done was they had my name written in Chinese characters, like by a local artist. So a local Chinese artist who did the brush painting of my name and that's something I've had hanging in my room my entire life and it wasn't really until I traveled to Singapore and was spending time with other friends who are migrants to Singapore who come from very western backgrounds that I realized that actually that was super weird (laughs) and I started to think about the fact that the culture that I was brought up with with my parents particularly is kind of different to what quote-unquote white culture is and definitely I have some elements of that like I do the little run when I'm crossing the street I do the little (laughs) whoop when I like bump into someone I really like mayonnaise Um, mayonnaise is great oh god it's so good it's yeah mayonnaise is very white culture (laughs) um but there are some elements of how I was sort of brought up that are really weird and I didn't realize for quite a long time and I know that Serena was sort of talked about your thoughts about your culture previously um mm. and I thought this episode would be a good way to kind of chat about that yeah that sounds lovely so yeah Serena do you want to do you want to just talk about like how you perceive of like your culture my culture like as an individual it feels to me like a huge amalgamation of different things and weirdly enough I think more than 50% of my culture is like white culture like when you described all those white culture things like doing that little run across the street and uh, loving mayonnaise like that's totally me as well (laughs) and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I grew up in New Zealand and the fact that I not only assimilated um, just by nature of growing up here, but I tried really hard to assimilate myself into white culture and tried really hard to fit in, if you will. And just because I tried hard to assimilate doesn't mean that those things are fake, that they don't mean anything to me because they're very real and they are a part of me now just as much as my Chinese heritage is a part of me. It's kind of weird, but it's, I guess, my truth as well. There's a sort of idea talked about a little bit called uh, third culture kids. Mm -hmm. So like when you grow up in a culture that isn't, you know, the one that your parents belonged to, Mm. you end up getting sort of like a weird mismatch of like cultural identities. Does that sound like familiar to you? Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of especially uh, Asian immigrants that have immigrated from somewhere in usually Eastern Asia, but other parts of Asia as well, to Western countries, 
We have extremely similar stories of growing up and extremely similar stories of uh, the the points of friction between us and our parents uh, and even our grandparents. There's a stand-up comedy special on Netflix by, I think it's Ali Wong, and it is amazing. It's fantastic, and it is really graphic in some parts and really crude. But I love it because she just pinpoints that kind of um, friction that I think everyone in a similar position to me feels, that friction between being raised up in a very Western society with Western ideals of individualism and choice and having that conflict with your parents uh, who have very Eastern ideals of community, of family. And it's really interesting to see when those points of friction happen and how just how common and how similar it is across everyone who is an Asian immigrant in a Western country. Do you want to expand on that? Like, because mm. I know I certainly mm-hmm. get, and so like, I don't want to, you know, espouse a huge amount on my experience as a white person because I sort of recognize that I exist in a very privileged place in society and essentially like when I want pieces from another culture like this idea of like well I can have them Mm -hmm. is very Mm -hmm. like very white very colonialist Mm -hmm. um but equally like I somehow in the way I was brought up I have this very strong idea that like well when my parents are old I will look after them mm. like and I have to be able to look after them like that is a very very important thing yeah and whenever I have conversations like this with other white people they're like well no you don't like you don't have to and it's just like yes I do. like yeah what do you mean I don't have to <laughs> like either me or my brother has to be in a position to care for our parents when they are old yeah and my brother is doing his thing right now so it has to be me right like yeah and yeah, so like that's one of the things that I think is very similar. Yeah, that's something that I never really understood as well. The idea of putting your parents into some kind of rest home. For me personally, that's really strange. I'm sure it's due to the culture that I grew up in. Like when my grandparents were still around, they lived with us. And when they didn't live with us, like we would visit them often. They would visit us. We'd see them every other day. And it was... It was normal to have three generations of people under the same roof living together uh, in a small cramped space, and that was what just happened. But also I think like your parents seem to be very well-traveled, and so I think your parents would have fractionally assimilated into the different cultures throughout their travels, and you would have grown up with a lot of very worldly experience from them. So that's probably why that disconnect is there. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I think they were often also pretty conscious of the culture they were in as well and mm. how, like, sort of the expat – I predominantly try and refer to expats as, like, migrants or immigrants mm. because, like, expat just sort of privileges, like, the Western experience of migration. Mm. Um, but, you know, what were called expat communities and my parents were very aware of how that engaged or integrated with the actual culture of the place they were in. Yeah. So I know there was um, a conversation we had when I was a teenager where um, – my dad was possibly going to go and work in Dubai. Mm. And I was sort of like, yeah, so of course we'd come with you. And my mom was like, no, you wouldn't. Like the American schools there, like they just turn out kids who are absolute brats. Like (laughs) I don't want you to go. I would much rather you went to a private boarding school in New Zealand because you would be a nicer person when you came out the other side. Right. And I think that shows like a very strong degree of like awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, like, that sort of quiet, privileged experience and, like, 
what it does to you as a person. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting because my parents probably have the exact opposite kind of approach. Um, probably because they did grow up in very, very poor circumstances. So in their minds, private school is a um, socioeconomic ladder. Like, if you can get your child into yeah. a private school, then they will succeed. And that's definitely the the approach that they took with me. And they would try and uh, compel me to go to the semi-private school down the road instead of the public school that I wanted to go to, because naturally all my friends were going to go there, so of course I would want to go <laughs> to the public school instead. But for them it was really important that I go to this private school. Uh, well, not private. It's like semi-private. It was the closest thing to a private school that we had in New Plymouth. Was it Catholic? It was Catholic, yes. It was one of those. It was really... I don't know. I was weirded out by it because they don't, uh, how do I say, have money. <laughs> so for them, like they were willing to work their asses off to get me into a school that cost them it would have cost them significantly more, even though they don't earn much at all. And they were willing to do that because to them, they saw private school or anything resembling a private school as the social mobility ladder. So uh, was it purely the social mobility ladder or was there a perception that you'd get a better education there as well? The, yes, both. They were kind of intertwined. Like They also really believed in the idea of metocracy because they themselves were people who came from extremely poor backgrounds and worked their asses off seriously hard and got themselves to university, got themselves to very good universities. They started businesses, they did all of that stuff, and they believed in education. They believed in working hard. And I think, for me, they believed that if I got a better education, that would mean social mobility. Whereas here, like in real life, it's kind of like social, like education is good, um, but social mobility depends a lot on the networks that you build and the circles that you reside in. And that sometimes is correlated with good education, but not always. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that exists if you go to King's, right? Yeah. But not if you go to the Catholic school in New Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's so fascinating to me that, like, your parents had the option of sending you to private school and had the clarity around that to say, actually, no, our child's not going to turn out well <laughs> in that kind of environment. We'd had discussions about me going to a private school, like while I was at high school. Um, mm. I don't know if I've talked about on the podcast specifically, but like I did not have a great time at high school because it turns out when you have undiagnosed depression and you're a teenager and the first person you come out to is your Catholic best friend, oh dear. like just, everything kind of breaks like super bad yeah. <laughs> like, it does not go great mm. and so I was just having like this terrible time at school and my parents were like well you know like how would going to a different school would going to a private school make this better mm -hmm. and honestly so the private schools local to us were in Hamilton and Cambridge which is a small town outside of Hamilton for our non-New Zealand listeners. And it's it's just the worst. <laughs> like, Cambridge, New Zealand is just, a, like, pretty shitty. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't think of anything worse than living in Cambridge, New Zealand. Like, I was just like, uh, no, I think I'm good. Like, I'll figure <laughs> out taught in a girls' college. Yeah. 
Can I just disclose that I I didn't know where Cambridge was before you just said. Yeah, it's so it's it's between Tauranga and Hamilton. And right. so like because I did like music and I played sports in high school, a lot of the competitions were in Hamilton mm-hmm. and so it would stop in Cambridge for KFC. Yeah, so like like I've driven through Cambridge Hamilton so many Cambridge, New Zealand a number of times and it's just it's the worst. And so like we'd sort of had like quite blunt discussions surrounding things like education. But I also think like my parents' experience and that like um so my parents are both from farming families, like I'm a fifth generation New Zealander sort of thing. Mm. And my mum went to Wanganui Girls. I think she finished year twelve. So sixth form. So she didn't do a final year of high school. She wanted to become a photographer and she went to the, um, the Wanganui Chronicle applying for a photography job. And the person interviewing her said, I've just given the photography job to the person who walked out the door. Do you want to be a journalist? <laughs> um, and so she's been, she was then a journalist for like 40 years. And dad sort of had a similar thing where we went to Otomodai College, which is like, you know, it's a mixed school in my hometown in Tauranga, but he came from a farming family. He was like one of the youngest sons, like, and then he went to Otago and got a surveying degree. And as he described it to me, spent three years drunk and got a lot of C's (laughs) um, and then became a town planner. That's Otago. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you're, you're not wrong. (laughs) And so like my parents very much like went to these like, very normal schools like Wanganui girls my mum was a boarder because she lived on a farm and so like had a bit of that boarding school experience namely that she like didn't know what a period was when she first had it so I spent a lot of time talking to me about my menstruation Mm -hmm. um which is horrifying as a teenager (laughs) when your mum just wants to be like super open about that stuff and you're like I in no way ever want to speak to you about (laughs) this but I think because like they had that essentially like social mobility like I wouldn't I feel like farmers are almost outside, like, the class system Mm. because there's this idea that people who do sort of manual work, like, regardless of what they do, like, it's they're seen as a lower class kind of person. Like, when you think about how tradies are generally perceived by society and, like, how tradies are seen by lawyers, essentially, like, if you think about that, I feel like that's the kind of feeling like a lot of people feel towards farmers when they don't come from a farming background. And my parents essentially, like left farming like did really well traveled the world like just kind of had a good time and that was in no way predicated on having like a posh ass education or Mm -hmm. like coming from wealth it they just did it and so I think what they really tried to prioritize for both myself and my brother was like our like the quality of our education like they wanted us to learn a lot and have a lot of doors open to us and like essentially not have doors closed to us because we weren't taught things Mm. Um, but also just like our happiness, which like, I mean, I have clinical depression, so that was an uphill battle for them. But like, it really was something they prioritized. Mm. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine being a parent and having to make those kinds of decisions when so much about your child's education and upbringing is essentially out of your control. That must be tough. Yeah, I mean, like this is why we talk about like teachers quite a lot. I mm. think. You know, everywhere there's an ongoing discussion about, like, what are teachers? Why do we love them? Whatever. It's essentially because, like, your child spends, like, you know, six hours of of a day upwards Mm. with them. They essentially see their teachers more than they see their parents sometimes, depending on the family layout. Yeah. Sorry, I've, like, that's a lot of family history. (laughs) No, no, that's, that's really cool. And I'm, like, thinking about it now, I really don't know 
anything at all, really, about my family history. Like, I, I know the fact that my mum and dad went to a high school, presumably. They went to a middle school, presumably. <laughs> but I really don't know. This is another cultural thing that I find is quite common with Chinese families. When I talk to my Chinese New Zealand friends about their family dynamics, it's pretty much exactly the same as mine, in that we just... The things that we talk to our parents about is usually not about them. It's usually about us, to be honest. And over the years, I've come to realize just how little I know about my family history, how little I know about my grandparents, and even my own parents, uh, how little I know about what their hobbies are, what they enjoy doing, like which schools they went to, where they grew up. Like that knowledge just isn't there. Cause... Do you think some of that is because you're physically removed from like where they grew up and like where your history essentially would physically be? Maybe. That might be a part of it. I guess what... I would really like to do is compare to like Chinese families on back on the mainland and see if like they know more about their family history or if it's just like a Chinese thing and we just don't talk. <laughs> That's like a thing that we do. I don't know. It's it's strange to me to hear a lot from my friends talking about their families and they know so much and I'm like how how do you know and they're like well my parents told me and I'm like hang on what? What is that? So my my grandmother, my preferred grandmother, they're both dead now, so I feel like I can say this quite bluntly. Mm -hmm. My The better grandmother that we went to would go and like stay with her for mm -hmm. like sort of a month, a year at least, when I was growing up. So my grandma has a farm, had a farm in the Manawatu, and just like, and this is why I asked about the sort of physicality of history, right? Like mm -hmm. driving down there, like particularly like whenever we went out for a drive, my mum would like point out to me like, Rongatia Primary School, where she went to primary school, and there was like two classes, one for the kids that were like younger and one for the kids that were like older. Nice. And she'd tell me, like, she'd point out the house where like her old like primary school principal used to live and like mm. would show and I just as a child, horrendously bored the entire time. <laughs> like but as an adult, like I really appreciate that essentially like I got this opportunity to go and see essentially my mum's and my mom's side of the family's history, mm. like just very, very regularly, and like could see the places that she used to exist, and they're very similar to how they used to be. Because like, while the Rongatia Primary School is shut down because just no kids went there, um, the buildings are still there a lot of the time. The landscape is very similar because it's farming country, and like you know that's what New Zealand's about. And that that interests me too, like the the physicality of history, like yeah. you know how it's really weird when you go home and there are like no buildings where there used to be buildings. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess our memory is quite physical sometimes as well. Driving past something that's a part of your family history, even on the off occasion, kind of further cements that into the communal memory, almost not necessarily the individual memory, and everyone gets reminded again. It reminds me of those, um, you know, those memorization techniques that they teach you. And one of them is to visualize a childhood home or a house that you know really well, and then mentally, physically place things that you want to remember in different rooms or specific shelves in this house. And then when you need to remember it again, you close your eyes, you go into this house and you go into the room and you see 
the thing that you're supposed to try and remember in that metaphysical space. So there's something to be said about physicality and the, the physical location of objects and locations and how that pertains to, I don't want to say like your own memory, but it's more like a like a communal memory. That kind of stuff doesn't die because it's still around physically in the real world. When you, because a couple of, I think it's a couple of years ago now, shit, um, mm. you went to your parents' hometown? Yes, uh, to my dad's hometown. Yeah. Yeah. Did they talk about history a bit more there? Like, did you see the places they grew up? Yeah, so we went for a walk around the little village, and it was really run down because of this huge migration that's going on in China right now. Um, everyone's kind of moving out of the villages into the cities because they get better pay. So we walked past a lot of old, old buildings, essentially like mud buildings. They were mud shacks with like this kind of dry hay as a a roof. Um, and so there were lots of those buildings and they would talk about like, oh, that was, that was the old storefront where they sold oranges. Or uh, we also walked past my dad's middle school, I think it was, which was this like kind of shabby looking concrete building. <laughs> and I don't think it was still open or anything because it seemed pretty run down and there were no kids around but yeah there was there was some stuff like that oh oh we went for a walk with my dad's two brothers and the buildings were not that noteworthy but something that really stood out to them and they got really excited when they saw it was this tree it was this reasonably sized tree and they were talking about all the memories they had uh, running around this tree and like trying to climb this very specific tree in what to me was seemed like <laughs> a random place in the middle of nowhere. Oh, and there was also this this kind of opening because there were it was village, so there were like bits of trees everywhere. There were these like kind of mini proto streets, and on the outskirts of that, um, there was a lot of bush. And there's this very small opening right near a lake. And they remembered this opening and they talked about how as kids they used to run around and play games and like throw shit at each other and run into the lake and stuff like that. Yeah, it was quite sweet to see the things that stuck in their memories and what mattered to them. And usually they were things that seemed not very noteworthy at all but I guess the memories that they had around these this very specific tree or this very specific opening in the bush were a lot more important than things like oh this is where I went to kindergarten have you um, started to feel that way when you go back to New Plymouth sometimes sometimes the feeling is not as vivid as when I go back to West Auckland which was where I was for primary I don't know if it's a certain like age thing because I was a lot younger in West Auckland and I'd remember this like very specific dent in this log in the playground that I would like put my foot in and try and climb this I don't know memory is strange the 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 smallest most insignificant things really can stick out and be a huge trigger for a flood of memories from so long ago whereas things that may seem more noteworthy just don't really do it do you get that when you go back to Totoma? I get it a bit although I'm interested like you sort of saying like you get it more when you went go to West Auckland so um mm. we moved to Beirut in Lebanon when I was around five mm -hmm. uh and we moved back just before I turned eight 
So I sort of have like this chunk of like primary school age memories that I've just never been able to go to the place where they were formed again. And I suspect, so like we lived in Beirut in the late 90s and there was still a lot of a lot of sort of ruins from the civil war so Lebanon had a religion-based civil war in the sort of I think the late 80s -hmm. Um, and so there were still like buildings that were bombed out and had like bullet holes in them essentially like that were part of the landscape that we lived in like we Mm -hmm. would drive past one of them and we went down to like Decca which is you know it's a department store that doesn't really exist anymore and so yeah, there's like this whole chunk of childhood memories that I have that I no longer have a physical like place that I can access. Mm. And uh, like I feel very strange when I think about like traveling to Lebanon because yeah. it's just kind of like I don't like I don't have cultural ties there. Like mm. we went there because my dad had a job there, right? Like I don't belong Mm -hmm. in the middle east like at all like Mm -hmm. that's not my place really and it feels weird to go to yeah to go like to go to the middle east with the specific purpose of trying to reclaim some childhood memories like that's another thing that i feel weird about like culture is like there's probably some elements of like middle eastern culture and there's certainly stuff like uh the the blue eye Mm mm-hmm you're meant to hang so it can see the front door and keep the evil out. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I do that wherever I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a friend come over and she saw it and she was like, but you're not Arab. You're not Middle Eastern. Like, why do you do this? Like, that's super weird. This isn't, this isn't your thing. I'm like, no, it is my thing. Like, just <laughs> let me have this one thing. It's a part of your childhood. Yeah. That's so interesting that you say that. Okay. I'm going to come to this point in a bit of a roundabout way, but a couple of weeks ago, Crazy Rich Asians was released, and some friends and I, we went to the cinema, and we were like, okay, yeah, let's let's go support this, you know, Hollywood film with a full Asian cast that's super exciting, let's go support it, let's go watch it. I did not have high expectations. I don't like rom-coms. <laughs> I, <laughs> You're terrible. Continue. Yeah, I don't have time for rom-coms in my life. I, they just don't do it for me. Um, it's a personal preference thing. So I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll go to this movie, it'll be cheesy as shit, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to support Asian American leading cast. Cool. Let's do it. I go into the movie, I sit down, I watch the movie, and I am continuously crying throughout I would say two-thirds of the movie and I didn't quite understand why and I thought about it quite deeply after the movie because it it was strange it's a strange thing to happen and I thought well is it because you know I'm finally seeing Asian faces and leading roles on screen and it's like well that's kind of part of it I guess but it's not a huge part and then I realized that I had connected with the movie so strongly on an emotional level because the lead character, Rachel, she's a Chinese-American, born in China, living in the States. So very similar to me, like born in China, living in a Western country. And this movie is her going back, not to China, to Singapore, but like essentially going back to quote-unquote the, the homeland, right? And her experiences and her grapplings with her own culture and her own identity throughout this movie as she's experiencing the homeland 
were so similar to what I had experienced when I went back to China two years ago with my family. And it's this experience of re-alienation, essentially. When you are obviously not from the country that you live in, you think, okay, I'm going to, you know, go back to the homeland. And I wonder if, this is just a side thought, but I, I wonder if black Americans think about this and like dream of going back to Africa and like exploring their, their you know, cultural heritage and, and their roots from three, four, five, six generations ago. Because I hear, I hear a lot of talk about that as well. But anyway, the expectations that I had when I was preparing to go back to China was that, oh, I'll learn more about myself. I'll learn more about my heritage and I'll finally be in a place where I don't look like I'm not from there. So I was kind of excited to experience that. But when we did land in China, when we did actually start walking around in the streets in China, I could not have felt more foreign. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel safe. Not in the way that I thought someone was going to rob me or mug me or that like I was going to get crimed on, but I didn't feel that kind of psychological safety that you feel when you're in your home country. And people who travel a lot will understand what I mean. You just didn't know what to expect, and that's kind of what I felt. And when we were traveling China and going to like visiting all these places um, with my family, and I was like talking to my sister, there was this one time when we were at the Great Wall which is, like, I can see why it's a wonder of the world. It's beautiful and incredible, and I don't understand. Like, you you stand there on the Great Wall, on this huge human construct, and think, wow, every single brick laid here had to be carried up those steep stairs that I just climbed, and they didn't have stairs. They made the stairs. So it's amazing. And, um, and I was talking to my sister about that uh, while we were climbing these incredibly steep stairs and there were some uh, Chinese tourists behind us or in front of us or something <clears throat> and they were like oh why why are those girls speaking in English that's kind of weird and the other guy says oh that's because they're not Chinese they're foreign and that kind of remark really hit me because like I know I'm not foreign here I'm a New Zealand citizen I belong here this is my home and I know that too to a theoretical, you know, legal level. But there isn't one day that passes that I'm not treated like a foreigner in the streets or in the workplace, and all with good intentions. Like, no one intends to be mean or anything. But, you know, that's that's how I'm treated because of the way I look. And it's like, sure, I, I understand that. I get why that happens. But to go back all the way to China, <laughs> to be in a place where I look like everyone around me and still be called a foreigner. That was really sad. And I think that's why I connected so much to Rachel Chu and Crazy Rich Asians, because that was kind of the killing blow for her as well, was that she went back to the homeland. She went to this place where everyone looked like her and, you know, this culture where she's from. And speaking the language that she speaks, she speaks Mandarin. And yet to be called a foreigner and to not belong in the last place that you could possibly belong was heartbreaking. And I feel 
like that's kind of similar to to your journey or to your thought of journeying back to a place that you grew up in as a very young child and the thought that you won't be able to seek the things that you were hoping to seek it's sad (laughs) no it is i mean i i also like went and saw crazy rich asians recently like while i was in singapore classic Ah! so cool i mean my my overwhelming feeling is that i would probably thank michelle yo if she murdered me right um (laughs) she's so great like she can punch my face anytime yeah but there there were moments like the um the dumpling making scene Mm. where it was just hmm, i have quite a close immediate family so like my parents and my brother like we are in the process of understanding each other as adults is probably the best way to put that mm-hmm. <laughs> um but you know i love them deeply but i don't have like a larger extended family i don't really have close friends from childhood like mm. there's barely anyone i went to school with that i keep in regular touch with and some of that is that we're very different people and that's fine mm. but to see that kind of community and like certainly the experience of like growing up in Beirut was not one that I would want to replace but it meant that coming back I was fundamentally different from everyone I met that no one else had this experience and no one else like in my world either people came to New Zealand and like joined our class and you know generally came from Britain a lot of the time Mm. and that was the one move that had in their childhood but no one had like left and then come back a few years later Mm -hmm. And that's certainly not gone to a place as foreign as Lebanon. It's, yeah, like, I've, I've never really talked about this before. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. It was really difficult. And it took me a long time to feel at home in New Zealand again. And part of that was, like, I changed my idea of what a home was. Because, like, while I sort of, like, you know, knew academically that, like, you know, my dad's family history comes from like Denmark but his family's been in New Zealand for a really long time and mum's family history they come from England but they've been in New Zealand a really long time like essentially it is our homeland mm. not to yeah in a very Pākehā way I want to say that quite quite <laughs> carefully in a very Pākehā way I'm from New Zealand but coming back it was just kind of like everyone here is different to me and I think that's like at least partly the experience like growing up being queer like Mm. you you know that you're you're queer from like a young age you just don't really know how to put that into ideas and Mm -hmm. words and like understanding that you're queer as an adult you often just kind of like look back and you're like oh yeah no I I almost definitely had like a childhood crush on that person right (laughs) like there it is (laughs) that's why I so desperately wanted to be friends with them oh no um how I sort of ended up managing that was I started to conceptualize home as like something that you built yes rather than something that you fund yeah like inherently belonged to and I think for a very long time that's how I understood home that's how I understood culture Mm. was like oh you belong and you just like don't question that but from like you know age eight when we moved back to New Zealand and like particularly after like 9-11 because like having grown up in the Middle East Mm -hmm. 9-11 changed a lot and like suddenly I was just very engaged in politics yeah as shit how old was I in 2001 yeah as a nine-year-old right Mm. like 
as a nine-year-old, I was into politics because I had to be, because the Middle East was where, like, I had literally just come from. Because mm. this, like, friends that I grew up with were Muslims. Like, there was a girl who used to catch the bus with me every day and, like, give me parts of her lunch and be like, do you know what naff is? And I'd be like, no, what is it? And she's like, eat it, we'll see. <laughs> and it was probably, like, a little bit mean to me because I was, you know, six and she was 15. But, like, those were the people that I was connected to as a child. And to have something so fundamentally change in the world and have no one else around me really recognize, like, how important that was. Like, that's super weird as well. Yeah. So um, my friend Yasmin, who has the questionable epithet of being Australia's most hated Muslim, wrote a book about like her experiences growing up. Um, her family's from Sudan. She's Australian and she's Islamic. And because she never saw any stories about people like her, she wrote a collection of stories about her life mm. at age 25. I haven't published a book yet, but that's fine, Yasmin. Keep showing off. <laughs> And it's really, like, it's a really good book. And one of the stories that, like, like really spoke to me was when she was talking about how she was tutoring a young person in, I think, like, politics or history or something. And she was talking about a paradigm shift. And she's like, well, like, 9-11 was a paradigm shift. And he was like, well, I don't remember a world before that. And that kind of brought it all back to me where I was like, yeah, like, a lot of people don't, like, yeah. our age and even a bit younger, like, don't remember that happening. Because, like, it didn't fundamentally change their worlds. And that's super weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> it was maybe the biggest political thing to happen in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Like 9-11 is a fundamental part of why the world is the way it is right now. Yes. And like mm -hmm. to a huge extent, the rampant xenophobia that we're seeing worldwide. Mm. I mean, as a nine-year-old, like I didn't get that. But I definitely got that like the world had changed and would never be the same. Mm. And it worries me that, like, particularly people growing up now, but, like, even people our age don't understand that that was the point, that everything changed. Yeah, and that there was a world before 9-11 and that a lot of our baseline assumptions and baseline views were different before then. Like, our perception of terrorism before 9-11 wasn't in, like... We weren't just like, oh, Muslim people are terrorists. Like, mm. particularly for people with, like, British backgrounds, like, a lot of the idea was that the Irish were terrorists, right? Because mm. the big terrorism events before then were things like the IRA car bombings. Mm. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I think about that a lot. Because, like, it has made the lives of people that I care deeply about very difficult. It was more just, like, it affects your life in, like, really small ways as well. Like, there's a sort of, like... Um, visa and passport and wearing a hijab issues right like and really actually go like if you can go read Yasmin's book because it mm. delves into these a lot better than I possibly could but it's stuff like I continued learning Arabic when we moved back from Lebanon because I knew I was gonna like pick up French again like a couple of years later in high school but there weren't options to learn Arabic through the schooling system in New Zealand really so I had an Arabic teacher and then after September in 2001 it was suddenly very difficult to find an Arabic teacher yep. yeah people went to ground like people stopped wearing the hijab everyone just did everything they could kind of like to disappear as being Arab, as being Muslim, that will have had a horrible effect on people's lives. And I mean, even in Australia, you see things like the Cronulla riots in 2004, right? 
that was predicated like the origins of that exist in 9-11 i'm gonna check that it was in 2004 what is um, it i hadn't heard about it so oh 2005 i'm sorry so the 2005 cronulla riots were a series of like um race riots in sydney in the suburb of cronulla and they were predominantly like aimed at mm, involving lebanese people basically like lebanese communities in sydney were targeted by race riots and that was my first at the end of my first year of high school and it made me the angriest I had ever been up until that point. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing about it and just being incandescent with anger that the Lebanese community would be targeted. And like, there was probably like, I don't want to be like that classic sort of middle line person, right? Like, there was probably an element of people just kind of like riling each other up. But it was definitely like when the main culture in your community is like Anglo-Australian and Lebanese people are getting beaten up. Like I'm not going to blame like the minority community here. Right. Like that's, that's not a thing. And just like Lebanon is not a country that targets the U S really. Like Mm -hmm. when we lived there, the South of the country was occupied by Israel. So like we couldn't go to the South of the country. Like, there have been multiple instances of Israel just invading Lebanon because they can. Um, Like the Syrian army occupied Lebanon for a very, very long time. And certainly there are elements of tension and violence in Lebanon. And I'm talking like, I'm thinking of sort of things like Hezbollah are based in Lebanon. And so like, I don't want to just say like, it's not a big deal, but like they're not a country that would fly a plane into a building in the West, right? Like, they have problems internally, and that tends to be what they focus on. They focus on their area, right? Mm -hmm. And essentially, like, the reasons given for the riots, like, at least what I remember in, like, 2005, were people kind of being like, oh, yeah, because they're terrorists. Oh, yeah, because, like, they did 9-11. Like, they caused terrorism. They're the worst. Like, we can't let them in our country. And it's like, a lot of these people were born in australia like Mm -hmm. it's incredible how dumb people can be when fear is involved and i think that's oh absolutely and i mean like yeah like we're still seeing that now right absolutely yeah it's and that's the that's the factor here right is fear for the safety of yourself fear for the safety of your family and your group and will resort to the stupidest heuristics to identify essentially non-threats just because we're afraid. And to identify people as others. And mm. look, I don't know Australia's national anthem because it's largely garbage, right? <laughs> but like, there's an element where it's like bountiful planes to share. But only with people. Well, like, I can guarantee you that all of the white people involved in things like the Cronulla riots, things like the race violence, we still see happening in Australia today. Like, They'll fucking stand up and sing the national anthem at an AFL game, but they won't listen to those words. They won't listen to things like boundless plans to share and be like, oh yeah, maybe we shouldn't be dicks to people. Like, but that's the thing, right? Is that they don't see these people in the art group as people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's something that, uh, when I have arguments with, uh, white people about 
racism. And, you know, we get into these discussions and it's like, okay, so like you obviously believe in equal rights for everyone. Like every human being should have these unalienable human rights. They 100% believe that with their full hearts. It's not that they think inequality is cool. It's just that they don't think a subset of people are fully human. And I don't think they do that on purpose, but it, it's certainly been something that's reinforced through the social psychology of tribal thinking. It's been reinforced through things like fear, and it's been reinforced by the media landscape that they reside in. And it's fucking bonkers, is what it is. I mean, like, you look at Australia today, and like, what, a couple of weeks ago, a political commentator used the N-word on the radio. Mm. And he has not lost his job. <laughs> like, he's still there. Can yeah. say the N-word whenever he wants, apparently. Yeah, Australia's wild to me. Australia's next level. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this is, this is all culture, yeah. This, the culture of belonging and identity and in-groups and out-groups. And... It's such a tricky balancing act because, on one hand, you want everyone to have strong identities, to have communities around them for whatever reason, however way you want to form a community, for social support, um, for friendship, for things like remembering history and heritage. And that's all really important and great. But on the other hand, you kind of don't want these groups to be so impenetrable and hard that you start dehumanizing the outgroups and letting fear basically take hold and uh, turn us all into monsters. Yeah, something I found really interesting in Singapore was that in the HDB, so like the government housing, which pretty much everyone lives in, there's forced mixing to try and minimize racial tension. So like mm. a certain amount of any HDB building has to be Chinese, a certain amount has to be Malay, a certain amount has to be Indian. Mm. I don't know if that's like the best solution. It's definitely a solution though right because like what we've talked about before like how when you see people in your community you begin to see them as people yeah your neighbor who is always super neat when they put the bins out is an immigrant or is gay or is trans and like you actually then have a conversation with them Mm. and you're like oh they're people too they just you know want the same stuff as us Mm -hmm. so that's the thing with integration right is that like you develop a stronger bond with people who are different from you but in doing that you also kind of lose a lot of individuality and like the differences start to blur which is cool I guess I mean I guess the ideal situation is that like we can all be different in our own ways and exist together happily with respect and love and kindness without losing bits of our own identity our own heritage our own culture but at the same time like being open to participating in others cultures as well that's the dream yeah and that's where that's where things like um cultural appropriation versus respect start to be a better conversation as well and that's a hard one too yeah i think speaking as a white person (laughs) yeah i feel very aware of that a lot of the time so it's things like um when we we're in japan like i bought a kimono and like hmm. wore it out a few times and that was really cool but also like i'd never wear it to like a halloween party yeah yeah 
I think that's I think that's kind of the line. <laughs> like, <laughs> Halloween parties. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> There's the line. I found it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's things like when you go and get your hands hennaed sort of professionally by someone who that is part of their culture. Mm. That's really cool and respectful. But mm. yeah, it's more the question of like, is this similar to me wearing it as a Halloween costume? Mm. I think it's a very good question to be sort of continuously asking yourself when you do something or eat something or say something that belongs to another culture. You're like, would I do this on Halloween as part of a costume? And if the answer is no, then you're good. And if the answer is yes, then you are in danger, my friend. So this is an interesting thing that um, I've noticed with cultural appropriation and the difference between how, how I react to it and how my parents react to it. Because... What will usually happen is that I'll see something on TV or the news that I would personally deem as culturally appropriative, mostly based on the fact that I feel incredibly uncomfortable. And I think that's, for me at least, that's where my kind of vague line is, is like, do I feel comfortable seeing this? And if I feel comfortable seeing it, usually it's, you know, done with respect, usually it's in a really positive manner, then, you know... I don't feel uncomfortable with that. But usually when there's something is off, you can you can start to feel that and you can start to feel that discomfort. So something like that will show up on TV and I'll be like, this is not cool. But my parents will usually be like, hey, this is kind of neat. This is uh, people who are not Asian, who are not Chinese, celebrating Chinese culture. That's what they see. And they're like, yeah, this is awesome. While I'm sitting there in the background like, feeling super uncomfortable about it and when that disconnect happens I kind of start to question myself like why do I feel so uncomfortable in this situation whereas my parents see it and think this is kind of neat people are celebrating our culture and I'm I'm still not sure and I still haven't gotten to the bottom of that but it, it is a very kind of murky line right you see a lot of like hip-hop artists appropriating Chinese culture and at the same time you see a lot of like Chinese people appropriating like like American culture so it's it's in a weird line where I feel kind of uncomfortable like when when I see Nicki Minaj's Chung Lee video with like these Chinese dancers with um the those like pointy hats it's like okay this feels kind of weird but I'm not sure it's a scale it's it's a sliding scale right something I am gonna show you is I'm gonna share my screen to you okay Oh, Aquafina, yes. Can I just say how I love how Aquafina's voice sounds like she's like a 90-year-old grandmother who smoked her entire life? Like, that's just oh her normal God. voice. So, I have been into Aquafina since she first released My Vag on yeah. YouTube, which is a song Classic. that has some very problematic lines in it, yeah. but I fucking love it. Um, so what I'm showing Serena right now is the song that Aquafina's done with Margaret Cho, and it's called Green Tea. And it's incredible. <laughs> and it makes me so happy. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like this is them kind of like taking cultural appropriation back a little bit. What a time to be alive. God, I know. I watched a TV series called Go On, which has Matthew Perry in it. And it's sort of a comedy about a guy whose wife dies, which classic. And there's an episode where he watches 16 Candles or whatever, like... 80s famous movie has the character Long Duck Dong in it. Mm -hmm. And he goes back into work and talks to his um, 
his sort of manager who's played by John Cho and he's like god like I never realized like how how do we not realize how messed up like Long Duck Dong as a character was yeah and John Cho just looks at him and says some of us realized (laughs) and it's like it's an incredible moment yeah (laughs) oh that's kind of like um even right now with shit all the me too shit that's going on and all the very very well-meaning men who are like i had no idea that this was going on like how how did we not know about these people and it's like um excuse me some of us did know you just weren't listening yeah like we literally haven't shut up about this yeah (laughs) please listen um sorry i was gonna say uh one of the things that essentially whether something celebrating your culture or is being shitty about it reminded me of was um the sort of like trope of like evil lesbian oh where whenever whenever there's a gay character in tv or movies i get so excited i'm just <laughs> like yes please give them to me and i mean like part of this probably is like growing up knowing i was queer like I loved all the evil characters in Disney films because a lot of them are queer coded. Like you think about how like beautiful Scar is or how Ursula is like a fabulous uh, drag queen, basically. Like, yeah, yeah, they yeah. Are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some of us knew. Um, <laughs> but basically like now when, so like in um, Jane the Virgin, one of the antagonizing characters is like a beautiful lesbian and I am super into that and I love it <laughs> and I think it's really good representation. I'm just like, yes, queen. Like, give me more of this. Like, mm. And when I mentioned this to, like, some other queer friends, like, predominantly female queer friends, they were like, no, we we hate it. Like, this is just more of the evil lesbian trope. Like, I'm so bored of only seeing people like me be the antagonist in these. Like, why can't there be a good lesbian? And that sort of juxtaposition, probably in, like, three years' time, I'll be like, ugh, I'm so <laughs> bored of the evil lesbian. I hate it. But also just, like, I kind of want a hot lesbian to murder me. So, you know, who knows, really. Well, it's it's kind of like the the dichotomy between I can finally see myself on screen, but it's a stereotype, one-dimensional version of myself. So it's either, it's either that or nothing, right? Because we're in this moment of change where things still aren't where they should be and we still are not as accepting as inclusive as progressive as we could be so in a lot of shows it's like shit i can either get the evil lesbian or i could get no one and i would much prefer the evil lesbian ah crap i could either get the nerdy asian character or i could get no one and i would much prefer the nerdy asian i'd prefer shitty representation more than no representation (laughs) And it's it's not a yeah. good place to be, but hopefully we can move on. And hopefully it's like a stepping stone. Something I was um thinking of when you were talking to your Church of China before, and I sort of mm. hesitate to mention this, because um, so the new season of BoJack Horseman has dropped, and there's an episode where Diane, who is Vietnamese-American, mm. goes to Vietnam. And I say I hesitate to mention this because Diane is voiced by Alison Brie, who is not Vietnamese-American. Oh. But okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Alison Brie is um Annie in Community. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, mm, mm. In earlier seasons of Bojack Horseman, there was, like, a lot of pushback against things like that choice of voice actor for Diane, and they have, like, really diversified their voice cast, and that is good, but it's still, like, okay, <laughs> fine. 
It's so weird. But yeah, like, and she goes to Vietnam and she keeps finding, like, people keep talking to her in Vietnamese and she's like, no, I'm, I'm so sorry. And then she meets some American tourists who speak to her very slowly in English and she's like, no, I'm American. And they're like, no, 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 you misunderstand. I'm American. <laughs> and yeah, that, I think that's another quite good question mark representation of like how it feels to go back yeah. to somewhere that you didn't really come from yeah if that makes sense yeah yeah it's a when you spend all your life in a place that is very adamant that you don't belong you kind of have a a lingering hope that there's a foreign land somewhere far away where you know you'll go there and magically feel at home the stars will align and you'll be like oh i understand my heritage now and i'm i'm finally at a place where i can be at ease and to then do that for real and find out that you're even more uncomfortable in this homeland is quite a shock and it's a it's kind of a feeling of homelessness not physical homelessness but like i don't want to say the word spiritual but that's the only word i can come up with right now it's a lack of spiritual home it's a lack of a place that has i don't know but i do like what you said before um when you mentioned that home is a place that you build I think that's a really nice way to look at it because then it's not necessarily about the specific physical space that you deem your home, but about the physical space that you choose to deem your home. And that's a lot nicer. Yeah, and it allows for building on like what your parents have, what your grandparents bring. Mm. Like you add to that. You bring your own views, the culture that you absorb from the world around you, the society around you. And that changes like the culture of your family and to a lesser extent like the culture of the community that you belong to in your home. Mm. Thanks everyone. Uh, you've been listening to Things of Interest. This episode we've talked about culture, terrorism, family, like and how you can never truly go home. I've been Sophia Friends. <laughs> and I'm Serena Chen. If you enjoyed this episode, please do Leave us some stars on the iTunes, give us a review, tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like, and as always, tell a friend. That's how we spread, that's how more people get to find this podcast, and that's how we meet more of you lovely people. As always, you can find us on the Twitters, we're at Casting Interest, you can find us on Facebook, Things of Interest, and you can email us. Our email address is castinginterest at gmail.com. And of course, stay interesting.